Welcome to Lakewood Sermon Podcast. We're glad you're here, and we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 online at lakewoodok.com slash live. Or we'd also love to see you in person at our campus in McAllister. It's good to see you. Oh, welcome. We get to do something cool right now. We're about to jump into scripture and try to figure out what God's trying to tell us. That's big. That's bold. And hopefully we can do it with some humility and come together as a church and kind of learn some stuff maybe we didn't know before uh, today. But right now, uh, it's, it's kind of exciting. We're, we're excited that we get to uh, do so many different things in the church. And I'm still reeling from Trunk Retreat. I thought it was a great night. Uh, and I just wanted to share with you, if you weren't able to experience it with us, just a little taste of what, what it was like by showing you just this, this picture real quick. Um, I mean, it doesn't even need a caption. It's just perfect the way it is. We had a wonderful time at Trunk or Treat, and uh, thank you all that donated candy, that brought, up, brought out your cars and decorated your cars. Thanks uh, to the McCullers for bringing out the, uh, uh, the Mr. Machine, the Batmobile, and all the great stuff that we got to do that night. It was a wonderful time, because uh, it was one of those times where not only did we get to do something for the community, but there's something that happens when we do stuff in the community with each other. And that's what we kind of got to get a taste of on Friday night. And so we're really excited that we got to do that. Uh, we're stepping into the fifth and final week of our series, Big Faith. Um, and we spent the last four weeks going over what faith looks like when it's practiced and acted out in the community of the church. Uh, but after looking at the series uh, and really looking throughout uh, the Bible and seeing these stories, uh, today we're going to stop and we're going to ask a question right at the beginning. But before I go in too far, um, i got to say, before I ask the question, I want you to know that this question is not intended uh, to be as an accusation. It's actually a genuine question uh, that I think we need to ask, that we need to chew on, that we need to do a little battle with as a church. And so this is the question. What has your faith cost you? Just think about it. Look at your life, look at your faith, and ask yourself the question, what does it actually cost you? We've gone through some decently difficult passages in this uh, series, but today we're going to read and study about the cost of faith, because our faith should cost something. Romans 12.1 even tells us uh, that I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. The Bible doesn't hold back at all when it tells us that to be a people of faith, to be followers of Jesus, we have to put everything on the table. We have to be willing to give up everything. And so today, we're going to study what that looks like and how we're called to follow Jesus with no reservations at all. So uh, this is a big topic. And so today, I want us to stop before we dive any further and just take a moment and to go to God and to ask him to prepare us for what he wants to teach us today. Uh, ask the Spirit to speak, to move in, uh, to direct. Let's take a second and let's pray before we dive in any further. God, we love you. Uh, Father, I, I, ask, uh, I ask that you would speak through me today. Uh, Lord, I'll be honest, I love being comfortable. But God, I know that you've called us to something that uh, calls that to be sacrificed. I got, uh, 
I ask that you would be the one that preaches this sermon today. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take these words and that you would take them and put them in the hearts of your people, God, that you would convict, that you would move us, that you would direct us. Father, we're excited for what you're doing and we want to be a part of what you're doing in this world. But sometimes we get clouded and sometimes we forget to prioritize or maybe we, don't, we forget to see your perspective. So Father, I ask that you would give us even just a glimpse of your perspective today. Lord, we love you. Please be with us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've spent the last couple weeks exploring the final verses of Hebrews chapter 11, but now we're going to look at all of these verses put together as a whole. It starts out with the declaration of the victories of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 32. It says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection." We got a lot of stuff happening here in this verse as we kind of start going through it. Uh, we got God that's stopping the mouths of lions. He's quenching the power of fire. And then in verse 35, we see women receiving their dead back in resurrection, which is a reference to Elijah and Elisha, who resurrected two widows' uh, sons in First and Second Kings. But then we see this in pretty, or sorry, there are some pretty incredible victories of faith that we see here. And we've been studying those by looking at Gideon, by looking at Jephthah, by talking a little bit about Samson. We've been seeing these victories that God has done through people, but then the author of Hebrews shows the other side of the coin. We'll pick it up in verse 35. It says, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's difficult. Because I see the beginning of this passage, and my honest thought is yeah, God. Give me the strength of a hundred men and I'll show you what I can do for the kingdom. Yeah, God, let me go and raise people from the dead. I will like, I'll be the most popular guy in every hospital in America. And not only that, but I'll give you all the credit, God. It'll be amazing. God, give me the long flowing locks of hair like Samson. I don't know how I would use it, but I'd love to have it. I'll be honest, it hurts that you laugh so much at that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You're good. Um, but then we read the second half of the passage, and we realize that there is a calling that we're not as comfortable with, a calling that we kind of hope doesn't happen to us, where we say, hey, God, we want to follow you, but let's keep it away from this side of things, if you would. Because it's a calling of not just obedience, but it's a calling of obedience and suffering as well. Scripture tells us that if we're going to be heirs of his glory, we're going to have to be heirs of his suffering. 
And in these verses, the author is talking about people who were beaten and sawn in two. He's referring uh, in this passage to actually the second book of Maccabees, which isn't in your Bible. You're not going to find it if you start thumbing through or going back to the beginning. Um, the book of Maccabees was actually written as a part of the Apocrypha, which was written during the intertestamental period. Because um, it didn't just go Old Testament, New Testament. There was 400 years in between the two. And, um, I mean, during those 400 years, Israel turns into the state that we see it in, in the Gospels. Like, Rome didn't exist at the end of Nehemiah. But it comes about through the intertestamental period. And in one portion of that period, we hear about a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes who comes in and conquers Israel. Antiochus was a brutal man. Um, He would bring the Jews into the town square. And he would offer them the flesh of a pig. And he would say, eat it or die. In essence, he was saying, renounce your God or die. Because at this time, this is before the gospel, at this time, there were dietary laws in place that said you cannot eat the skin of an unclean animal. And a pig was an unclean animal. And so he would bring them into the middle of the town and said, eat this or die. And if they said no, they would be tortured and killed. One of the most famous of these stories involved a widow that had seven sons. Um, They bring these sons into the square. The mother is watching this whole thing take place. The first one asked the king, what do you intend to learn from us? For we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors. And the king hears that, and almost like King Nebuchadnezzar, who becomes so infuriated that he orders that these large pans and cauldrons be heated over fires. And then he takes that son, the one that was the mouthpiece of the brothers, and he cuts his tongue out. He cuts off his hands. He cuts off his feet. And then while he's still breathing, he places his body to fry in the pan. He also has him scalped. And then the second son comes up. And the king does the exact same thing to the second son with the mother watching on. And the son with his dying breath shouts out, You accursed wretch! You dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. And then he dies. And then the third son gets up. And this guy, man, this one's the one that gets me. He walks up on the podium to the king, sticks out his tongue, holds out his hands. And he says this, I got these from heaven. And because of his laws, I now disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again. I'm not going to take you through all seven. But it happens to every single one of the seven brothers. And I honestly don't even apologize for the gore of the story. Because these things happen. These things happen in our world today. There are people that are being tortured for their faith all across the world today. And these are the stories in which the author of Hebrews refers to whenever he says, when he makes his point here, that to be a person of true faith is to be willing to give up your life, your preferences, your comfort, because we believe something to our core. We believe something to our core. Hebrews 11.1 says it this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. 
So what's, what's the thing that we believe that allows us to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices? That we have an assurance that this isn't all there is. That this isn't all we get. That's what the assurance of things hoped for. That there is more. That we have a God that will return to us everything that we lose and more. That we have a conviction that we belong to a kingdom that's not of this world. And in that kingdom, we find our comfort. We find our peace. We find our true home. And the sons that we were just talking about had that understanding. They had an understanding of what was important. And so if you're keeping notes with us uh, on our app or on paper or wherever you're keeping notes, uh, our first real point of the day is this, that our relationship with God is better than anything life could give to us or death could take from us. Meaning that the world has nothing to offer. Our relationship with God is the best thing we can have. It's better than anything the life could give to us or death could take away from us. A relationship with God is the most important thing. It's worth the suffering. But even the people of this time had a hope. We heard it in the stories of the brothers, right? We see it in the lives of Samson, and we see it in the lives of Gideon and all the people, all the heroes throughout the Old Testament. We see that they have this hope. But really, they only had a hope of something that they had a glimpse of. They only got a glimpse of really what it turned out to be. And we're going to pick that up again in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 39. It says, And all of these, this is including the heroes, also the ones that were tortured, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should, be made perf- they should not be made perfect. It's a confusing couple of verses in Scripture. But understand that the people of the Old Testament were looking forward to the fulfillment of a promise. See, in the very beginning of time, God made Adam and Eve, and they were not able to keep his laws. He said one thing, don't eat of the fruit from this one tree. And what do they do? They go and eat of the fruit of this one tree. And then God comes and Excuse me, and it finds out that, you know, that it was Satan that directed them to do it and all these things that were going on. And God's response in that moment was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent here, and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That doesn't seem like much, but that's actually the very first messianic prophecy. So even in the moments where everything went wrong, where the rift was created between God and his people, God said, one day I'm going to make it right. One day I'm going to bring that rift back together and I'm going to bridge that. And we see the promise that he made to Abraham. You know, Abraham was following God in many places and then eventually God goes and tells him, you're going to be the father of many nations. But then he says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, that I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And on your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That part. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. What he was promising to Abraham was, from you I will accomplish what I promised in Genesis. I promised that there was going to be a solution, that there was going to be a healing of this rift. And in Abraham and you, I'm going to bring about that healing. 
They were looking forward to the coming Messiah and the resurrection that he would bring. And each of these died in a world, though, in which the Messiah had yet to come. They didn't die seeing the Messiah come into the world. And then in 1140, we see that God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What this means is that we're living in the realization of the promise of the Old Testament. Right now, we're living in it. Because here's what happened. Abraham had sons, right? And those sons had sons. And those sons had sons. Eventually, David comes into the picture. We like David. And then David uh, has sons. And it keeps going down the line and down the line. But eventually, we find this woman named Mary who is in a manger, or in a, basically a stable because they can't find any room that's a suitable actual hotel or anything like that. And she gives birth at that point we see the virgin birth of Jesus happen in this world. Jesus was born. He was raised. He uh, astounded people with his knowledge. He eventually became an adult. And then he went about teaching people. And he went about performing miracles. And he went about telling us about the kingdom of God. And then he claimed his messiahship. And then he was killed for that claim. And then he was buried in a tomb. And everybody thought, that's the end. We thought it was going to be good. We thought this was the guy. But it's over now. But then three days later, death could not hold him back. And he was born again into this world in resurrection. And he came in as Jesus, the right hand of God, the savior of the world. That is the story that we get. That is the fulfillment of the promise that we're talking about here. They knew that there was a promise that spoke of a time when the rift would be mended and that it would be the distance between God and his people would finally be obliterated. And that's what we get to experience today. One of the things that knocks me out is that I get to be closer to God than David at the height of his piety. (laughs) I have God inside of me. That is something that is available to the followers of Jesus, is that we get a piece of God inside of us. It's what we get to experience, but to be truthful, it's also something that we take for granted. We're living in the fulfillment of the promise, but here's the thing. The Messiah has come But God's not done. The resurrection was not his final act. Praise God. If if anything, the resurrection was uh, what returned us to square one with God. What brought us back to the point of relationship. But now we're at a point where in a relationship where sin can no longer separate us from God. And so we are at a point where things can begin. We can experience actual closeness with God, but the resurrection is not his final act, or to put it to the point, the resurrection is not the end of God's plan, it's the starting pistol for his kingdom. When Jesus was in the world, he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that's a kingdom that we get to take part in today. So where the people of the Old Testament were anticipating the coming of the Messiah and his resurrection we are anticipating the coming of the kingdom and the final true resurrection that we will experience as full citizens. That should get you a little excited. (laughs) 
But even as we take part in the kingdom of God, we're just living in the glimpse of what it will one day be like. Because really the joy that we experience now is a shadow of the joy of the kingdom. The suffering we experience now will only seem like a moment in comparison to the kingdom. But we need to realize that we're living as a part of God's plan. We anticipate the kingdom. But God is still moving and calling us to move in the now. We're not just sitting there twiddling our thumbs until Jesus finally comes back. We've got work to do. From creation to crucifixion to resurrection to the birth of the church in Acts to you sitting in this room in this chair right now or at home watching on a video screen. God is not done. It's a long race that we're called to run the full length. Now, when it comes to the race of God, we're only running a small length of that but we have to be prepared for what we've been called to run, which is why it's so perfect how the author of Hebrews begins the next chapter in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. So he's just told us all of this, and then he says, therefore, you know, one of the things that we learn about Scripture, anytime you see a therefore, you ask, what's it there for? And he just said all those things, right? It's suffering, it's, it's, it's the faith, it's doing the big things, it's all of giving ourselves completely to God. And he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising its shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Not too long ago, my wife joined a few other ladies in this church with a mission. They wanted to run a half marathon. And for me, oh, hey, that stopped. Hold on one second. For me, I'm just going to talk while I fix this. There we go. Oh, man. I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. Anyway, I'm going to keep talking while I do this real quick. For me, uh, I was really excited about my wife running a half marathon as long as I didn't have to do it. Um, and I, and I'm, I know there's some amens in there for me. Uh, but No, I was, I was okay with it as long as I didn't have to do it. It was one of those things that I was going to be her biggest supporter. I was going to work with her. We were going to work through things together. And I was going to be on the sideline cheering her for everything, but I wasn't going to run a single step with her. And I, I was good with that. In fact, her very first time, she, she ran and practiced and trained, and she did a lot of stuff with her friends, and it was all great. And she was getting better and better and better. But then they finally had their first 5K, the Shared Blessings 5K here in McAllister. And I remember it was when Curtis was still on staff, and Curtis and I went and uh, we ate breakfast at the meeting place. And as my wife was running across the finish line, I was standing there cheering her on with a plate full of pancakes, just going, you go, good job. Which if any, you should know, anytime that you want to experience a really good race, that's the way to do it right there. You just eat pancakes and watch other people exercise. (laughs) But the amount of time and effort that they had to put into being able to run this race was crazy. Um, I talked with other husbands that were a part of it too. And like, we just kept saying like, yeah, our wives are crazy. Like, uh, it's amazing what they can do uh, when they're working on this. Uh, but had they not done the work, because we eventually went to, to Maine and they ran in the half marathon there, but had they not done the work, they never would have been able to finish well. We're called to run the race. 
But we have to see the race beyond the romantic version of just crossing the finish line. We have to see the miles. We have to see the hills. We need to know that we have to be prepared for what God is calling us to because races are a time of struggle and extreme effort. And that's what God calls us to, to prepare to run the race to its completion. It's supposed to cost us something. And so at the beginning of this, uh, I asked the question, I'm going to put it back up, what has your faith cost you? What does it actually cost you? What have you had to give up? What have you had to let go of? What have you had to sacrifice? I had a professor in college that they used to take uh, these Holy Land tours, and I really wanted to go on them, but they were super expensive. Uh, but on one of those times, they were in uh, Rome, and they went down and actually got to see the prison cell that Paul was in when he wrote First and Second Timothy before his death. And in that, he read all of Paul's writings about uh, the torture and the pain that he was experiencing. And then as he came out of the, the prison cell, he just he sat down and started to weep. And another professor that was there said, are you okay, are you okay? And he looked up to me and he goes, it has cost me nothing. I've given nothing for my faith. Today, if I could, and I know um, I have so much respect for so many of you, but I'd like to ask you a question for some of you as a younger brother in the face. Um, Maybe not a question as much as it's just a request that we all do an inventory of our lives. And we ask where we're truly leaning on God. Not our own ability, not, not our finances, not uh, our health or lack thereof, or not our spouses or anything, but areas where we're truly leaning and absolutely dependent on God. Because the truth is this. That running the race well will cost you more than you're prepared to give up. But it will yield more than you could dream to receive. It's going to cost more than we think it's going to cost. It's going to cost more than we're prepared to give. And if you look at any of the heroes of the Old Testament, you'll see that God almost pinpoints the spots where they're not willing to go and says, that's where I want you to go. And so we take our cue from the heroes of faith who have taught us to reason that God has brought us this far and that he will continue to provide, like Abraham and Sarah. That when our faith is acted out, even in small ways, it has an impact beyond our comprehension, like Joshua and Rahab. That we can experience fear and still choose to follow faith, like Gideon. That God can use flawed and imperfect people for his plan, like Jephthah. And we'll never regret giving up the temporary things of this world in favor of the eternal things of the kingdom. Our lives in this world are a race and this isn't the place where we make our home. This is the place where we act out our mission. This is the place where we find our purpose. James 4.14 says this, that we are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We are so temporary in this world. And if we would be a people of obedient faith, we have such an opportunity to serve right now, right here in McAllister and in the world. 
I want to close today with this. There's a book by C.S. Lewis called The Last Battle. Um, It's a fictional book, uh, but I believe the statement to be true of the joy that we anticipate as Christians. See, at the end of this book, they all come to a place where they end up entering into Aslan's country or heaven. And he begins to tell their experiences there, but hear this because this is the thing. When we think of how short a time we have in this world to actually do what God has called us to do, it says this, that all this life in, the, in this world and their adventures had only been the cover and title page. But now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. Church, we have such an incredible thing to look forward to. And it's a thing that finances can't touch. It's a thing that COVID cannot touch, praise Jesus. It's a thing uh, that makes every, even the most egregious suffering in this world seem like a moment, and the greatest joy in this world seem like a shadow. Let us keep our eyes on the goal. Let us place our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, and run the race that's set out for us. Let's pray. God, we love you. Uh, God, I ask uh, that you would uh, <laughs> that you would take these words and that you would place them uh, into our hearts. That you would help us to do battle with them, and God, that you would uh, do a little surgery on us and show us where uh, where we need to trust you more, where we need to let things go. God, I ask that you would give us the boldness to follow you without reservation. And God, please help us to do it as a community, as a family. Lord, thank you for giving us a glimpse of the kingdom that's to come. Please help us to anticipate it. Please help us to look forward to it. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.